Hi. How's life? Um, I got up at 4am to get the bus and then the train here. So A bus and a train. Yeah, it's kind of like a connecting bus to the Amtrak. Amtrak's pretty nice. I've never ridden on a bus or a train in the United States. Well, that's because the only thing you know is horse and buggy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech, is that correct? Yes, that is right. Oh. How do you like America? Is this, this isn't your first time here, is it? Um, I've been to like the West Coast a couple of times just for vacations, but I'm finding the East Coast to be just like totally different. You're so rich, you just kind of go to another country for vacation, come to America, crazy rich Asians. <laughs> well, not first class. We, we, before the pandemic, we used to get really cheap flights sometimes. Um, because Asia, there's just more people in Asia, Southeast Asia than there is anywhere else. So the flights are the cheapest because there are like loads of people taking those routes. Gotcha. What's so? What's different about the East Coast? Different vibe. Um, it's more green here. I I definitely like the vibe better. Maybe it's because it's a little bit more, um, <clears throat> like Ireland where I lived before. Virginia is very green, like farm yeah. trees stuff that's nice and pretty. Yeah. It's not. How long were you in Ireland? Were you studying there? Yeah, I just studied there for about a year. Gotcha. Just under a year. Cool, so you're getting your PhD. That's yes. pretty crazy. I have a high school diploma. <laughs> well, you don't... It's it's not so much the use of... It's it, like you don't really need a PhD to talk about subjects like colonialism. Um, it's just if you really want to publish or you want to like write or create something new in the subject, then you kind of need one. Yeah. What's your master's in, by the way? Um, media and comms communications. Nice. Cool. And so what's like the full... I know you're doing a PhD in something, colonialism, but like what's the what's the whole thing? Isn't it something about like um, Anabaptism, something, something, colonialism? <laughs> you snuck Anabaptism in there somehow, right? Oh, yeah, I totally did. Okay. Uh, well, the overall degree is in... Like, it's in all the social sciences, so everything that's related to politics, society, sociology, um, religion, culture, and what's the other one? Ethics and philosophy, like everything. So we can, uh-huh. we can take classes in any of those areas in the university. But my thesis topic that I'm working towards would be something to do with, like, nonviolence, um, Christian anarchism, and, like, just the whole, like, colonial problem. Yeah. Not just the old one, too, like, Christendom and how it's still a problem today, like, with Christian uh-huh. nationalism. It's the same thing, like, Christian nationalism and colonialism, imperialism. It's literally just the same thing in a new form. Yeah. So do you have an advisor now, or does that come later? Um. No, not currently. So I'll be taking classes for two years uh-huh. and then eventually i'll like find my own advisors okay and are the advisors when you start writing your dissertation 
Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a little bit longer, like the American style of PhDs. Like you take classes for two years here,、mm-hmm. and then you write for two years. Oh wow! So you have four more years to go. Yep. I thought it's only、um, six years to get your master's, and then two more years to get a PhD. I think it's the other way around. Okay. Two years or so. Here it's about like everything takes longer here. Yeah. Um, but. It depends on the type of PhD. A lot of I I never thought of applying here because the PhD programs tend to be like indefinite. Like there's no finite ending, and I don't want to be stuck doing it for ten years. So I like this one where they kind of like they'll be like we'll fund you for four years and beyond that. Like we're not、yeah. funding anymore. Gosh, yeah. Cool. So you can basically pick classes that have to do with social science or. Political theory or anything、mm-hmm. kind of surrounding that, and then once you get to your dissertation, you find advisors and start writing. That's、yep. kind of the way it goes. Yeah. Are there advisors at Virginia Tech that know anything about Anabaptism? Like, is that? It's not exactly what I think of when I think of Anabaptism as Virginia Tech. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, I did look at some of the more like Anabaptisty. Um, universities, but most of them, most of the researchers, like they teach undergraduate classes, like Bluffton, Goshen. Yeah,、um, they don't really have PhD program. Messiah doesn't. Messiah, actually, no. I think I looked it up, and they don't. Okay. Are they a college or a university? I don't know. I just know Drew Hart teaches there. I don't think he did. Remember,、anything. I tried to get my friend in <laughs> and embarrassed you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was kind of funny.、Yeah. That was that was kind of funny.、Um, yeah, I I think I did ask, but I looked at it too. So yeah, gotcha. It's a whole nother world to me. I mean, I've I've listened to enough you know podcasts or read enough books by people who've got PhDs that I kind of I think I understand the process a little bit. But yeah, I've literally never gone to college, so it's like feels like. Um, an ivory tower. No, it's so, it's just like you just especially with kiss your ring. <laughs> it's just like you go in and then you just have to meet certain requirements, and sometimes those requirements are very redundant. Like、yeah. if you like, let's say you're、uh, you know you're in this field, you've been working in it, and then you go you go back. Let's say you started your own business and you're a CEO.、Mm-hmm. To go back and do it like an undergraduate degree in business is just pointless. A lot、yeah. of the things they would teach may not even apply、mm-hmm. in the real world.、Um, but the the good thing about so far, I found that the the scholars and the research being done at Virginia Tech in terms of colonialism. And a lot of the researchers, like, they either research anarchism or, like,、um, religion and empire. There's going to be a class on the Bible and empire next semester, so I'm、nice. pretty hyped up for that. Yeah. So there's classes on anarchism. Um, there is. There are researchers who research anarchism. Do they get、know. Antifa to come teach? Or <laughs> isn't is Antifa actually anarchist? I mean, their symbol is an A with a circle around it, right? Does that stand for Antifa or does that stand for anarchist? I don't know. Yes, they definitely are anarchists. That's what that's what comes to everyone's mind when you use the word anarchist. Is like some some Antifa nineteen year old with purple hair smashing a building. 
Um, it's, well, I just Googled it. No one thinks non-violence when they hear the word anarchist. (laughs) Like, that's, that feels like a, what's the word when there's two opposites? Um, a contradiction of terms. I feel like there's another word for that. Anyways. Polarization? No. Dichotomy? No. It is a, anyway... Yeah, that's definitely what comes to people's mind when they when they hear the word anarchist. So I, I couldn't imagine a college teaching anarchist theory, but maybe. I mean, it's just one of many theories. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in fact, when I talk to people, I feel like I can relate pretty well because I was like just talking my class to a, like a Colombian student student or like a Persian American student, and they're both like they're like, oh yeah, we're into anarchism. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's a pretty leftist idea, so Is in your it? ivory tower of academia, you probably will find some anarchists. But they're not Christian anarchists, right? Um, it, the, the, the overlap between anarchism and Christian anarchism, especially in the beginning, isn't really that, like, philosophically, they're not that far apart. Like, uh-huh. I think secular anarchists also read Tolstoy. Okay, yeah. Or maybe they would look to, like, Gandhi and nonviolence, or maybe they would... Like, yeah. it, some of the some of the writings and some of the influences. The main difference, I think, is that secular anarchists tend to be against religion. So they would yeah. say, no gods, no masters. Mm-hmm. But then Christian anarchists would say, yeah, we'd agree with you because the kind of god and religion that they're referring to is, like... Christendom and Constantine. Yeah, and it's kind of like I don't believe in the God you disbelieve in either, right? When when an atheist sets up this this picture of who God is, and then you're like, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, in one sense, God it, ruling over us is an archy, right? I mean, God is king. Jesus is king. So we're saying, when we say anarchist, we're saying no human archy, which is, the, I would say that's the distinction between Christian anarchism and secular anarchism, right? Yeah. Um, but, then, but then our God comes and lays down his life for us. So it's like, it's still an inversion. It's um, very much, and it's even more so, it's not just taking away, um, it's, it's more than... It's more than just saying, well, um, let's say we have Caesar. It's not just saying, let's live without Caesar. It's saying, let's subvert or invert. Let's let's flip that. Like It's the upside-down kingdom. So I think it offers a lot more than just like take that away, implode it, and then what's left, you know? Yeah. So do you know anyone who's done a dissertation on colonialism and Christian anarchism and nonviolence like... Are, are there other researchers who've, who've done work in that that you know of? Um, there are three. I think I've talked to two of them. Um, so the thing is that, like, one would be uh, someone that we've interviewed before, which is Dr. Dr. Christianopoulos. Like, if you Google Christian anarchism, you'd see his name because he's published on it. There's... Um, uh, Dr. Troxell, who actually did a PhD in American studies, but it was actually about Anabaptism and Christian anarchism. But that one was mainly like studying like John Howard Yoder and Stanley 
how it was.、Uh-huh. And then there's a third one, which is、um, a book called Christian Anarchism, something to do with the the Dalit people in India. Oh, cool! So you might enjoy that one. It has to do with how like the sort of, it 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 is post colonial, and it is Christian anarchism. It's a very specific case study of how like. The the British kind of left behind a church that was very sta- statist,、mm-hmm. like that centered the state, and therefore, like the focus has always been on working through the state or supporting the state, and that has kind of like not related so well, not been so useful for、um, and also even liberation theology, not just statist theology.、Mm-hmm. Um, liberation theology, this book argues, is statist. And therefore, does not really fully enact liberation theology is statist. According to this author, yes. How so? Because you're using, you're relying on the arm of the state to. Oh yes. To, like, bring about、um, change. So that's a very Anabaptist idea, then.、Um, yeah. Huh. Interesting. So, what's your plan after you get your doctorate? Once you're Doctor Rebecca Mui, well, it's a long ways yet. <laughs> I haven't even finished one semester, so、yeah. I'm not thinking too far. I've got options to go and like work in other countries.、Um, not, I would prefer to go somewhere else. I guess. Really, I, th- I think I'll be very sick of Babylon by 2027.、Yeah. We'll see.、Nice. Yeah, we don't know if Babylon will still be around by then. That's true. So you want to go do research or teach or something like that? Is that your plan? Well, I guess that's. I mean, like I got my first job teaching in a college right after I got my first degree, like just with a bachelor's. Yeah. And so, like, I applied for other kinds of jobs, whether it's like teaching in a school or.、Um, I think mostly I mostly sent resumes to schools, but I ended up just like. University teaching seems to be the job that I actually get. So yeah, it's like you know,、um, capitalism. We have to work to eat. That's right. Yeah.、Um, are you gonna write a book? I have several ideas for what I want to write about, but you know, as you kind of write about it, like I I write like three or four thousand words, and then put it on the Kingdom Outpost. Yeah. <laughs> You can go to kingdomoutpost. There it is. Yep, we're fourteen minutes in. We got the first Kingdom Outpost <laughs> plug. Good work. I mostly put it up there because it's easier to track an argument in、um, short form. I'm finding it hard to actually take all these bits and pieces and put them together in a book because then I want to track the argument over. Book and I keep thinking like I need to establish this better. I need to build the case better. I need to put more evidence in here and there. Like if I'm writing about gender and theology, for example, and then it becomes so bogged down by all the things that you need to do、mm-hmm. that it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, if you put it all together, I think I have about twenty five thousand words on. How many pages is that? I, I remember looking into that for my. Book that I stopped writing. <laughs>、uh, I'm gonna try to start again this fall, but like I was, I'm shooting for a 150 page book, which I think is more like 40,000, right? 
Um, let me look it up. I don't know, like in I don't know in terms of like books because oh, so it is. Yeah, uh-huh. your one hundred and fifty page book is about thirty seven five hundred words. Hmm. I think that's what I'm shooting for. Um, I mean, I I think you would have enough to say to come up with thirty seven thousand five hundred. So would it, would it be something like? I, I think you need a you need a main thrust, right? You can't you can't just mix anarchism, anabaptism, anti patriarchalism, anti or post colonial. Like I think you can bring all those threads together, but you're probably your main thing is going to be gender, right? For that one, yeah. Yeah. And then bring in those different angles. Which I'm not sure if anyone has done. Like Amy Bird and all these Beth Allison Barr, I don't, I don't see any of them really bringing in. Certainly not Anabaptism, but even like the other other things you're interested in and mm-hmm. relating that to gender theology. Usually they track like uh, the rise of complementarianism in the West, so it's a pretty American centric mm-hmm. approach. Like even Kristen Dumay did that as well. Um, so that would be actually kind of a fresh angle at it. Yeah. Hopefully I don't publish it all on Twitter before. <laughs> well, that's what you need to do. You need to keep workshopping it on Twitter. That's what Trump did to get elected. Like, he would tweet <laughs> stuff. He literally tweeted, let's build a wall. He was just throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah. Um, and he tweeted something about building a wall, and I think that got the most traction on Twitter. So he's like, okay, that's my thing. So you could follow Trump's playbook. It's worked out good for him. Yeah. Well, a simple pitch could be gender is and has always been political. It's always been very much tied to how society views gender. It's how it views politics. And politics is a reflection. Like, for example, the Roman Empire, how they constructed gender was based on the emperor. So the emperor is for... Uh, according to historians like the ultimate masculine figure the more like the more ideal you are the more you are like the emperor and the more you would enact your own sort of power and conquest in your own domain so you're like a mini emperor the emperor is like pater patrie which is like the patriarch of of the entire empire they use that word yeah they use the word patriarch for the emperor Mm, yeah patri Pater, patria, like father of the fatherland. That's father, like... It Sounds like Putin, father of the fatherlands. <laughs> well, actually, that, that, that is even more of a better example than the Roman emperor. Like, Putin has been building up a social ideology in Russia for, like, since he got to power. Like, all the shirtless pictures riding horses. Yeah. He's trying to say Russia has been emasculated and he's representing the ultimate masculine figure. And then everything that he's done in relation to social relations is, in fact, this a reflection of, like, the current imperial sort of invasion that Russia is enacting. Has he said stuff like that explicitly, or are you just kind of getting that from his pictures? Like, has he explicitly said Russia's been emasculated? Or- yeah. Really? I mean, there are, like, I downloaded a bunch of articles on it. I don't remember exactly what he said. But basically, they're even, like, overturning anti-domestic violence um, regulation in Russia because they're trying to encourage, like, 
masculinity. They're mm. centering like a dominant imperial colonial masculinity in Russian. So like the gender ideology for that is is the same as their war ideology. I feel like he's kind of getting emasculated in Ukraine right now. So that backfired. <laughs> uh, I've not wanted to comment too much on it because like, what if I want to go vacation in Russia? What if... <laughs> <laughs> you want to go vacation in Russia? Like that's a thing? Well, yeah, my granddad went once. Um, it's supposed to be a beautiful place. Not now, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to go to Russia. I don't want to end up like um, Griner. The, did you hear about her? I wonder what happened to her by now. I haven't looked her up in a while. The American basketball player. Oh, why is it her? She went to she went to Russia, and had like a vape machine, or a vape, whatever you call it, in her bags, and it had traces of CBD or something like that, and they they put her in jail. Last I heard, America was trying to work out some exchange with her. Um. So I didn't know that they had like She's the WNBA championships yeah, in um, Russia. Oh yeah, Russia. Russia loves women's basketball. It's so weird. That goes against your thesis a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, they like as a culture, they believe in strength and they believe in like tenacity and in being like she is so tall you see her like with these little white russian guards that are like come up to her waist it's so funny it's actually really sad she was sentenced to nine years in prison oh wow and and the just for having like traces of cbd in her vape when she was and i think she was over there before the ukraine war broke out and they basically you know arrested her as a Probably as, as sort of leverage in the war, which is kind of what's happening. They're working out a prisoner swap with America right now. Mm. Anyhow. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm not going to Russia anytime soon. I would advise you not to do that as well. <laughs> well just so you know, Putin, Rebecca is super anti-Russia. Right, I just, I just <laughs> screwed up your, your vacation plans. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, I, 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 it was very interesting watching sort of the rise of their version of Christian nationalism, oh. like the resurgence of the Orthodox Church. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of good things that we can learn from the Eastern Christian tradition, but also but watching... But not the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exception. Well, they are kind of like... They are kind of intertwined. There is yeah, a video yeah. um, about like the... The different, like, Constantinople, um, the Byzantine, like, I don't exactly know how their hierarchy works out, um, but I know Russia is, like, pretty high up on the... But Ukraine is Orthodox, too, right? Is there the is there a Ukrainian... Mm-hmm. I was looking into this recently. Is there, like, a Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Yep. Or are they part of, like, a, a larger group? There are actually two Orthodox denominations in There's Ukraine. M- oh, in Ukraine. Okay. One one was like leaning pro-Russia and really? like under sort of the the umbrella of authority of the Russian patriarch, <laughs> literally. And then one of them had kind of like moved under the umbrella of the Constantinople or something. Um, there's actually a really good channel that can get addictive. Let me try and find like it's all about 
denominations and when like the first day that or just a couple of days after the war broke out like huh. let me see it's called ready to harvest on youtube it's pretty good like they they go through they even talk about like anabaptists they talk about like oh, nice. all the different let me see yeah so there's a good one that you should watch if you're interested and i happened to watch it about like what's the difference what are like the different types of oh there's even one here recently called what are the schwarzenau brethren what, what's that is that a type of anabaptist yep nice yeah it's so crazy like it's it's orthodox christians fighting orthodox christians mm-hmm. which seems like how it's, it's how so many of these wars go down um yeah putin man He's, he's losing, though. Like, there's a lot of resistance. Like, Brenda and I were watching a live stream of just tons of Russians getting arrested the other night when, when Putin announced that there's going to be a partial mobilization. Did you see that? Oh, no. Yeah, and there's massive protests in Moscow, and they're just arresting hundreds and probably thousands of protesters. But I, I think this is going to be the downfall of Putin. Like, if he loses, which appears to be what's going to happen... Well, I don't know. <laughs> He's got a pretty tight grip. But I think there's a chance that like his stranglehold on Russia could be broken if and when he loses this war. Um, but yeah, they've, they've got it pretty locked down up there. It's pretty wild. Yeah, so the basic idea was that like for Caesar or for Put- Putin, the ideal of like masculinity as dominance takes is called like you have the um you have your internal dominance within society within your culture and then you have like your external dominance which is over like additional territories um we could go I, it's all in the article that i recently yeah. well, what's the article give it a plug um, I think it's called Lost Love and the Doctrine of Two Kingdoms, which is okay. basically about like the ancient world and how how war and imperialism was gendered for them. Or more than so where did this start? First of all, do you believe in evolution? Mm. Well, that's... That's a loaded question. I was thinking about this today because somehow I knew that the patriarchy was going to come up in this conversation, and I was I was thinking like where where did this start? Like male dominance over women. Um, I guess if you look at the biblical narrative, in my opinion, it came about at the same time as like the curse. The curse, like war, violence on earth. Um, because like in the ancient world, the entire way that they understood gender, um, like the Mesopotamian world, and it's all in the article, they basically believed that like uh, males will... They're, you're only truly male if you're at the top of the food chain, basically. So if you are conquered by another country, you essentially become feminized. Um, and then, like, sexual violence was a part of that. Mm-hmm. So the binary really was not actually male and female as we understand it today. It was a binary of, like, uh, content warning, like, rapist and the raped. 
essentially. Mm-hmm. So like to be male, you asserted that kind of like sexual dominance, and then everyone who was a victim of that, whether it's like war conquests, whether it's a slave, or which it whether could be another a, male even in that. Exactly. Case. Yeah. So if you are, yeah, exactly. If you are a conquest of war, or you're a slave, whether male or female, or child, or you are, you know, then you are all under like the passive feminine category. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that in in your in your account of origins that started at the fall at the curse, whether evolution is true or not, that's where it kind of started. Um, well, I don't think it started in Eden. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, and, and it's quite like, okay, like, what did the Assyrian army do? Like, they ravaged the land, they ravaged the people, they ravaged the animals. Um, they, like, or what did every conquering Mesopotamian army do? I think there's an article about how it was like that way for the Mesopotamians. I think it really became like a, conscious or written down philosophy when it came to like the greek or roman empires because that's mm-hmm. where like it maybe people just assumed and believed it but somebody like aristotle come about in his book politics aristotle talks about like oh and it's so it's so enlightening like i was just reading his first chapter on politics and i think paul was actually directly commenting on that really because because this is what aristotle says he says that basically nature creates two kinds of people, the ones who rule and the ones who are ruled. So it's the same binary again, like, the, mm. you know. And then he says that, well, you have masters and you have slaves and slaves are incapable of governing even themselves. Masters are the superior being and they're capable of governing. So slaves are naturally born that way. They're mm. born to be slaves. And then he says, well, Greeks are born to be superior. Barbarians and Scythians are both born to be conquered peoples. They're born to be slaves of the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And then women, of course, to Aristotle, again, are inferior, are born to be ruled just like slaves are born to be ruled. Mm -hmm. And Aquinas and like a lot of theologians actually just repeated Aristotle throughout the history. This was before the Roman Empire, right? When, When was Aristotle doing his thing? Yeah, Aristotle was under the Greek Empire, but the Romans... Yeah. They kind of co-opted Greek culture. I mean, they co-opted the language. They Yeah, basically. They... So how was Paul commenting on Aristotle? Well, when he says there's neither male nor female, oh, yeah. slave nor free, barbarian nor Scythian. Oh, so some of the same, like that's basically the same wording that Aristotle used? That's what I'm finding. Yeah. Like, he's saying that, look, these people actually believe that you were born slave, born to be ruled, or born female, which means born to be ruled. Mm -hmm. And now he's saying, like, now you're all one in Christ in the way that the categories that they assume to be immutable are actually, like, he calls, he says, we're all bondservants, which is very offensive to people who are not slaves. Like, how dare you say, like, I would, you know, or... uh, those who are free are Christ's slave, and those who are slave are free in Christ. Yeah. Like, to confuse assumed categories like that, or even just, like, Aristotle, and I think it's just a reflection of what everybody, the signs of the day, believe, that females are just mutilated males. 
Really? Yes. So the they believe that the male is created perfect and females like some ill wind happens and then a female comes out so it's like a weakened mutilated male they they believe there's only one sex that is the perfect male and then like lesser versions of that and uh, when Paul says like husbands love your wives as you love your own bodies to someone who lives in a culture where literally every medical text says that female bodies are just like mutilated like to say esteem someone and love them as if you love your own highly esteemed male body mm-hmm. is a huge statement it's a huge like cultural yeah mind-boggling thing just like to say that someone who is um free is actually a slave in Christ or the other way around yeah man there's so much of what paul said that's lost on us if we if we're not in his cultural context like looking back post feminism like it it looks like paul is very regressive but that's because of our our position right mm-hmm. whereas in like like you're saying in his context where everyone is kind of bathed in this aristotelian philosophy gender you're right like that i never thought of like how some of that language would have been directly like speaking to the the current ideas um yeah i was shocked to see the words barbarian scythian like yeah and scythians are considered barbaric and uncivilized and where were the scythians from scythians <sighs> scythian or scythian i'm freezing scythia probably scythia <laughs> from kazakhstan kazakhstan so what paul is saying is that the, the social hierarchies are assumed to be what we call like it's the same as the during the colonial era it was called biological essentialism like you are born this therefore this yeah. is your place or like if you're born a king or a king you're born a peasant peasant if you're born a subhuman non-white then you are you will always be like less intelligent or something like that so that's did what people like how could people actually believe that like, did they actually believe that, or were they just using that ideology because it benefited them? When? Which, which period? I mean, uh, every period where, where people were dehumanized and considered to be less intelligent, less human, whether it's a female or it's someone who's a different race. I yeah. think the, the contrary, I think, is true, which is that to assume that all humans are human is a modern idea. Really? So they, they, it wasn't just a useful fiction. They actually believed that. That was just the water they swam in until like the 20th century. Or until Paul. Until Paul. <laughs> until Paul just blew their I mean, they, they kept rolling with it for another 2,000 years, though. Exactly, though. We see like the, the church take on that idea and it became like Christians are the true human. Christians are... The true civilized yeah. everybody else is like barbarian or pagan. Which is like Paul would just be like, man, you guys totally missed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting this new humanity that rejects that. And then you're like, okay, the new humanity is the actual humanity. <laughs> it's like, what a weird, what a weird inversion. Um, no, but the, the one that particularly stands out to me is like 1 Corinthians 7, where he says like, the husband has power of the wife and the wife has power yeah. over the husband. People will say, well, that's only talking about 
a very specific context, you know, mm-hmm. about that passage, when actually it's like it's blindingly clear just from like if you go to the Wikipedia page about like sexuality in the Roman Empire, that sex was the metaphor for all power. Okay. Like that is why war there's like sexual violence as a part of war or why crucifixion was considered a form of sexual violence because you you are you know degrading your are you are um, violating the body of somebody piercing it mm-hmm, exactly <laughs> i mean that could be the same with like an invading army like russia yes Maybe. they are doing that that's it's like, or, um, so like when Paul says that, when, and then the word that he uses is exousia, which is a word that's like very specifically used. I think we overuse the word authority as a Christian concept. And when, when the New Testament uses it, it's purely in the form of like Jesus saying, do not exercise power. I'm freezing. Really? <laughs> like I'm really cold. You can go yeah, get I a should, jacket. Yeah, get my want. jacket. But anyway, yeah, our, we don't have HVAC right now. Our oil heater is not working. Oh, I was just thinking that, like, what Paul is saying in in First Corinthians seven is actually just mind blowing and has so many more implications in a world where hierarchy was based on who was sexually dominant. Um, when Paul says that it is a mutual authority, that is that is like the clearest, um, the clearest example of what kingdom relationships are, as yeah. well as Galatians three. But I have to go and get my jacket. Go for a cold. whole monologue for a while. So, dear listener, um, I know you didn't come here to to hear me. You wanted to hear Rebecca, but. Uh, She's gone, so I can say bad things about her. You have to put content warnings. I'm here um, gossiping about you while you're gone. Oh, what did you say? I was kidding. I didn't say anything. I didn't have time. Content warnings? Um, I don't think it's been it's been too yeah, intense yet. People but, want the gory history. They'll have to go and read it on the Kingdom Outpost. Yeah. I want to circle back a little bit, though, because you talk about how invading armies use sexual violence. Mm-hmm. What do you do with the Old Testament passages where it appears that Israel was doing that and it appears that God sanctioned it? Like, if you can take um, the women for yourself, isn't that in there somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> All right, what do you do with that? Well, the one that often comes up when I'm debating um, or discussing, even with Anabaptists, uh, they'll see like, God who trains my hands for war. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but then it's, uh, first of all, it's what I assume, if I remember correctly, David is saying about God. Did God reveal that he had trained David's hands for war? Or, or was David wrong? Or maybe that he saw a limited picture. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm not... I don't see it as like... I don't know. There's a there's a certain level of like... A limited subjective view that they had. Like a shadow of things to come. I mean, there's just the whole concept of like... 
God telling David, you can't build my temple because you have blood on your hands. Yeah. The one that comes to mind, like you mentioned, is how the sort of promised land narrative, like this land yeah. is inhabited. Dude, it's manifest destiny. Yes, exactly. Like, why are we okay with that in the Old Testament, but not in North America? And they appropriated it. It's the exact same thing. This land is inherited by pagan tribes. It is just as bad. Drive them all out (laughs) and then settle it with your happy little homesteads and each person gets a plot. (laughs) It's it's exactly the same thing. So, like, why are we okay with it in the Old Testament? There's, um, There's a lot more research. Like, I'm not an Old Testament scholar by... I don't know, like, if... I can't answer for the nonviolent stance, though I know there are people who argue and study it really well. Um, there is an article about how this kind of view evolved among even just Anabaptists. And I think Guy Hirschberger was one of the first to say that God is not pro-war. And before that, they were like, God is okay with war in the Old Testament. God's now not okay with war in the yeah. So, you know, there are different views on the subject, different types of convictions. How we deal with that is something that we need to look into and discuss more. So I can say that, yeah, that's something I definitely have not studied that well. Though I will still, like, dig my feet in the, in, in the sand, dig my heels in and say, absolutely, God is not okay with David's warfare. Um, but there were certain things that God could not do or reveal at that time either because it was a fallen world and there was no way to break out of that cycle anyway. Yeah, are you familiar with Greg Boyd's work on this? The Crucifixion of the Warrior God? I've heard of it, but I have not read it. Yeah, so he wrote an academic book by that title and then he wrote a pop version of the book called Cross Vision. Mm. I listened to the book as I was working, which always means I get about 50% of it. So, yeah, the pop version of it, his, his basic thesis is that when Jesus died on the cross, God appeared to be defeated, right? He appeared to be in the wrong. He was willing to accept that shame. I'm probably really misrepresenting him right now. But in the same way, in, in the Old Testament, God was okay appearing to endorse these things, but actually was not endorsing it. <laughs> I think... I'm sure if he heard me right now, he'd be pulling his hair out because that sounded very unconvincing. And the book was a little bit unconvincing. Like, I hope he's right. So his, his basic idea is that the Israelites misunderstood God. God was not, in fact, commanding genocide or manifest destiny or taking foreign women in, in when conquering other countries. He wasn't commanding any of that stuff. And even like things like I think he would even take umbrage with things like Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And basically anything in the Old Testament that makes you cringe, (laughs) Boyd would say, yeah, they they misunderstood God there. So you are losing a lot of... Inerrantists. Yes, you're losing it. And and dude, Boyd's latest book is um, Denying Inerrancy. It's it's Inspired Imperfection. That's his latest book. well, inerrancy is like, it started with the Chicago statement in like yeah. the 1920s. So, uh, 
Like, if people are going to corner me on that, I'm going to just be like, well, let's go to the Nordrick Confession of 1632. I don't, you know, you know Chicago Statement. Did they say anything about inerrancy? I mean, I've debated people about it on Twitter. But the Dortrick Confession, did they say anything? Oh, no. I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is that it, it just it's not important in the Anabaptist framework. So, so if we're looking at it from an Anabaptist lens, I think an important question is, what did Jesus believe? Yes. Did, I, I don't, I, I do think that Jesus believed the Hebrew scriptures and believed the conquest narratives to be historically accurate. And it doesn't appear that like he was really bothered by them. So should we be bothered by them if he wasn't? Like, well, I've, so like you've had Jolene on your podcast. Um, I haven't dug into some of the examples that she gives because, like, the Old Testament is huge. Job. Huh? You're saying Jolyn Lehman? Yeah. Yeah, she had an issue with Job because God was sort of allowing someone to abuse his child. That's not good parenting, right? I think was her basic argument. There are a lot of... There are a lot of things like that in the Old Testament, like the taking of war... Uh, the taking of brides in war, which, um, which, which, like the time when they came out of the bushes and like ran and grabbed a woman. <laughs> exactly. I mean, okay, if you clearly know that from from the new covenant perspective, that these things, that all these things happening, you know, concubines grabbing brides out of like you know taking war, conquests, uh, all these things were a part of Old Testament patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And we know from the New Testament that like, concubineship and all that, like, that's not something that's part of the kingdom of God. So why would we be so attached to anything else in the Old Testament? I thought you were into Judaism. <laughs> well, you know, I I have not read into it that much. But where the Jewish position today comes out on these topics is actually very similar to how we would view them Um, ethically to do with war. I mean, but what they don't have Jesus. So what what higher authority do they have than the Torah? They're the Torah to them is mediated through what they call like the oral Torah, which is the oral, which is because the Torah is not exactly clear. How do you do all these things? So the oral Torah is the Mishnah. Yeah, the Mishnah and the Talmud are passed down from Moses with also additional um, voices of um, additions or interpretations or layers of complexity. It's very, very complex. They don't, they don't read the Old Testament with the Enlightenment worldview that we have which is to rationally take everything at face value and to make it into a logical set of formulas and prescriptives mm. like creation or anyway the, the the from what i know ethics in judaism um i mean they're not advocating for war or genocide or uh, anything of that sort in let's say rabbinical hasidic or orthodox judaism today um, in fact, a lot of the things when I listen to them talk about um, the age to come, the kingdom that God is going to be establishing, and how uh, their mission 
is to bring about healing in the world. And this is an idea that came about in the Mishnah, which is that their duty as the light that got, you know, the light on the hill, something like that, um, the, a light to the Gentiles, mm-hmm. is to bring healing and reconciliation and peacemaking and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that when I read it, it's they're not coming away from the Old Testament with, with war and genocide either. Yeah. So this is an honest question, right? Mm-hmm. So we have sort of more progressive Jews, even more progressive Muslims, certainly progressive Christians. And we're all agreeing that peace and love and tolerance is important and looking at our, our religious texts and trying to find ways to reimagine the problematic parts of it, whether, whether you're Muslim or a Christian. I mean, there's, there's issues in the Quran, there's issues in the Bible, right? So are, are we starting from j- just post-enlightenment like philosophy and and then kind of humanism yes human rights so is that our foundation and then we're going to our religious texts and reinterpreting them based on that or was it and i don't know if you're familiar with tom holland but he's he's an atheist scholar from the uk who wrote a book called dominion about and his thesis is that jesus Mm-hmm. Is is where the enlightenment and where what? where all of this stemmed from? So what? his his thesis is like in the Roman Empire, the idea. So one example would be so we have this sort of like conservatives will talk about the victim mentality or mm-hmm. the victim mindset. Everyone wants to be a victim. They are the ultimate victim. Everybody's out it's to true. get them. That's that's the irony. But they, it's a fair. It's sort of a fair criticism that. Like, being marginalized is kind of cool in the West right now, right? Um, that would have been that would have been unheard of in the Roman Empire until Jesus came along. So he sketches, he has a, a really thick book, a historical sketch of how th- this, this idea that, that the king of kings was crucified, like, society marinated in that for so long that that's actually where the secular West gets ideas about equality and justice and that sort of thing. So it's a Christian thing. And I think he would even say that like liberal Muslims or liberal Jews would have, would be getting that from Christ and his teachings. So is that the case or is it sort of like a secular thing that we are, whatever religion we're from, we're kind of trying to, trying to twist our scriptures to align with? Um, I know in the case of Judaism, it's not the progressives that, Teach like what I described would come from the Orthodox, and just like the really? way, yeah, it's not, it's not like I'm not talking about reform or conservative denominations, I'm talking about like so there's 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 astral. there's Orthodox which is the most conservative, and then there's conservative which is centrist, and then there's reform which is liberal. Is that how it is? Basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah, something like so. That. The Orthodox Jews don't like get excited about genocide <laughs> in 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 general now this is very very much uh they are pacifists in the sense that like in israel they will not join the army they will not participate like in the state yeah <laughs> they when you they, get super conservative suddenly you get liberal again <laughs> it's like a horseshoe <laughs> Yeah, in a sense, there is. I don't. I don't think it's just pacifism. I think it's because they view the secular state as ungodly and and not the 
the the the true restoration of um, Israel that God it's totally promised. Amish. Yeah. It's this, it's literally the same thing. That's so funny. They so they wouldn't join the Israel the the military in Israel. No. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and that would be on the most conservative side, yeah. yeah. Which I guess is a little different. They're just saying the state of Israel is not conservative enough, right? Is that is that their basic reasoning? Or not? Yeah. Um, also, I mean, you won't see them joining the arm. They're. Um, would they the, use self defense? The, historically, no. I mean, if you're talking about who was really non-resistant in history, who did not fight back if you look at the history of jewish people in europe now the whole idea of the state of israel is that finally we're going we're not going to let all the violence happen again we're going to stand our ground and defend ourselves because historically they never did they they were they were practicing non-violence better than the majority of christians in european history they also didn't have powers <laughs> i mean yeah but you could I mean, oh, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of like, you know, ethical discussions about whether it was right or, or wrong or you know, self defense. But the the fact is historically, um, maybe forced into it. Whatever there was more, yeah, a kind of like. But my but yeah. So my my original question though, what what do you think is the case? Like, do you think Jesus is the reason we're coming to some of these ideas about? like a, a suspicion of power and inequality, or is it a, a secular enlightenment thing that we are we are sort of being influenced by and then going back and, and reinterpreting Jesus and certainly reinterpreting the Old Testament based on that? Well, I would say historically the church did not as a whole take up the idea of marginalization i mean they they it was all about dominance and hegemony in christendom the value of the being the 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 marginalized uh, or the minority witness was not there um so where it comes from in modern it, where it comes from in the modern imagination in my opinion, possibly when I look at the narrative, what comes I from the Anabaptists. <laughs> what I'm seeing is that the violence and the the like it didn't it it was it went from being in Europe and like the Inquisition and you know um, doing violence towards the Muslim and Jewish people in Spain and Portugal and just completely trying to eradicate them basically. I mean, the hegemony got so intense that it was not just in Europe. It started to spread throughout the whole world. And a lot of the reactions to that have just been sort of like, look how Marxism, for example, is a criticism of how bad things had gotten. Yeah. Or the peasants' war. It, in a, it could be... That Christendom was so awful, and in my opinion, yes, that all these things in reaction to it are trying to criticize, to deconstruct, to to reframe things, especially from like the global perspective, the yeah. global self. So it's just a natural reaction to being oppressed. A natural reaction to the to the 
to the growing and just like the globally dominant expression of like I mean colonialism was 84% of the globe yeah um 75% of people today were colonized by quote unquote Christians mm-hmm. I I don't I wouldn't necessarily say that like these positive human values or just like the criticisms or like the amplifying the marginalized and all that comes from um, Christianism, I think it's like a reaction to it in people. Yeah. Well, a, a reaction to Christendom, not to true Christianity. Obviously, we need to make that distinction. Yes. But, ha- like, is it is it true that it's sort of an anomaly that people in positions of power are also adopting this ideology so what i mean by that is like a lot of if you use if you use race in america as an example a lot of white people in america are pro black lives matter um and and historically you would see groups that are oppressed or marginalized reacting to those in power or, or maybe they just always accepted it i don't know but it like, like what what you were saying just a little bit ago is that you think that this the sort of new wave is is just a reaction to Christendom or a reaction to oppression. So it comes from the marginalized originally. But then what you also see is is a lot of the, the people in power agreeing and saying, yes, this is this is also wrong and like we need to stand up for that. That's that's historically unusual, right? That a, a group in power would would agree? Or is it just posturing? <laughs> well the idea that the majority actually agree is, is 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 maybe we need to look at like statistics or whatever it is. But maybe they don't. The, the huge sort of far right resurgence yeah. in America, kind of like, and and a lot of I think progressivism is also like a performative sort of like we are on the right side now type of thing. Yeah. Like. I feel like America in particular, when something really bad has happened, like, let's say, you know, all these things, then Americans would give themselves a pat in the back for something like the Emancipation Proclamation, say, we're such a heroic country, and this is why we should celebrate it. But the fact that you actually needed it in the first place, and, and yeah. why it happened, and, and all that, like, it's like they adopt the retroactively and say this these are our values this is what we like i was just in dc right with with um with jolene and a couple of friends and just seeing like the way it's almost like a retroactive like saying this is what america stands for it it stands you know this is what we have achieved when really it's actually telling you what what we did wrong in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, the argument from conservatives is that no other civilization. What what is the argument that we, that we see slavery in a lot of other civilizations? The the we're the only one that that overthrew it, right? Um, it was also a sort of political thing, wasn't it? Was it? I mean the. I mean, there's like Jolin knows a lot more about this than me, um, but I mean, abolition just a, a a couple of decades before was like a 
small number of people, mostly Quakers, I think. Mm-hmm. William Lloyd Garrison, a couple of Quakers, and pre-proto-Christian anarchists, we call them because they were expressing Christian anarchist ideas before. I mean, there, there before weren't... Before cool. Yeah. <laughs> before it became even a term, before anarchism was even met. Well, well, no, not true. Anabaptists were called anarchists by the Calvinists. They were? Yeah. In, I didn't know that. That's kind of cool. In the Reformed... I thought just Matthew Milioni did. <laughs> but he's not an Anabaptist. You know. My bad. Uh, the, the Reformed Belgic Confession of... Like, the core Calvinist confession says, we will not be... We are not the Anabaptists who are anarchists. That's awesome. Or at least that's a translation, but... <laughs> yeah, cool. There's always been a close thing. I but thought that was kind of a New Kingdom Christian... T- idea to mix the two but apparently not apparently not no yeah anyway where were you going where was i going? i think it was something the abolitionists like, you're throwing shade at abolitionists no i'm saying that the <laughs> abolitionists were small in number yeah but but they won out like america fought so the argument when, when people brag about america when conservatives brag about america they say every civilization throughout human history has had this institution of slavery the America and the UK, or the West, essentially, is the only civilization that overthrew it. Like, you had Muslims over the same time as, as abolition was taking place who had slaves. And they were not setting their slaves free. It was only when... This is in... Um, where did I read this or hear this? I forget where. But, but like, I, I, I believe it's a historic fact that only when the West put pressure on the Muslim world to emancipate their slaves did it actually take place after the west overthrew slavery within their own civilization then they kind of forced that on the rest of the world that's the argument from conservatives now it's also true that like the slavery that took place at least in america was worse than slavery in in most other parts of the world (laughs) right so that's that's also true worst is is really like not a, a good term i don't think but uh, what we've what we've kind of like some things we've read recently it's about how slavery under colonialism was completely unique it was race based it's race based it's based yeah. on exploiting like as much as you can gain from the land it's um like for example uh one of the papers was about how even the concept like they they go to Columbus, you know, they go to South America, they invent the concept of like, who is the pure blood Spanish? So you have one tier, then you have the native, they call them Indians, you have another tier, they became serfs. And then you have another tier, which are the slaves that they they brought in and they created this entire system, like the whole entangled system of, of slavery under colonialism was something like the world had never seen before. Yeah. And that was, in fact, uh, a specific type of capitalism as well. Mm-hmm. So it started, you know. And- Which is worse, right? It is worse than slavery in the Bible, at least. I, again, I, I wouldn't want to use the word worst because, like, when I do read, like, the system, like Aristotle saying that slaves were born slaves, yeah. or the idea that the slave belonged in body, the idea of bodily ownership, meaning that. Roman masters or Greek masters could have, you know, uh, sexually violate anyone yeah. they wanted, including slave children. Like, Which never happened in America, of course. Oh, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> that was a bad joke. So. You know the idea that like authority and ownership is also bodily ownership. I think we're not thinking about that idea enough when it comes to the issue of sexual abuse. Like when yeah. people think they have power and they own somebody, so somehow in the human psyche, that kind of domination is also a sexual domination. Yeah. So if you're saying that the biblical slavery was not necessarily better, why do you think Paul and Jesus did not overthrow it directly and explicitly? Well, just why, to- why didn't they just say slave? By the way, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, oh, and by the way, slavery bad. Um, and <laughs> like, why, why didn't he just throw that in there? Well, just to go just to go back to that earlier one. So the idea that the West sort of champion abolition is a laughable concept because they're the ones who invented like new and worse forms of slavery. Oh, you just use the term worse now. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the system of it. Yeah. The the again like I the scale. The scale. The yeah. system. The 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 whole nature of it was was something they invented and now they take the credit and it's, say we're it's kind so of like what abusers do and they like beat someone up and then they're like oh but let me help you now right what, what's that called i feel like there's a thing a term for it anyway uh where, where you, you you commit the abuse and then you kind of take credit for helping the victim yeah um Anyway, but back to, to yeah, Jesus and Paul question. not not directly addressing biblical slavery. What do you do with that? Because that's that's the New Testament. Like that's that's our heroes, Jesus. At least Jesus. I don't know if Paul's your hero. <laughs> but what did Jesus? What? Okay. Well, we'll start with Jesus because okay. I think Paul is a derivative. I mean, Paul was repeating a lot of what Jesus was teaching. He was recontextualizing it for the churches in a pastoral role, kind of. We start with Jesus. I I think that a Jesus who tells someone to sell all they have and give to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. What like all that you have, all that your earthly a accumulation and wealth like, I don't think you could take up your cross and follow Jesus or sell all you have and sit on a plantation. And But you're not doing that. You're not selling all you have, right? So you wouldn't say that's necessarily prescriptive for every disciple, right? It's a... I actually have an upcoming article on that. On the kingdomoutpost.org, people. <laughs> I think... Oh, what... In the context of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I mean, it was something that he said to him, but it was something that he then said as a general principle that whoever has left houses and land and father yeah. and mother. I, I believe that Jesus was actually telling us what the new covenant is in comparison to the old covenant. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like Deuteronomy 28 verse five for example is that you know you're gonna have god says when you're blessed your your prop your your crops will prosper you have lots and lots of kids jason mcfarland are you listening (laughs) like the whole the old testament or psalm 127 128 like uh your your the labor of your hand shall be blessed yeah Um, the whole idea is that the old covenant inheritance was about god giving people a very prosperous life with like the land 
the patriarchal clan and the patriarchal lineage. Um, and and that is patri- like Deuteronomy 28 verse 5 and the promise and, and Psalm 128 and 127 are what we can possibly term the best possible patriarchal system. And I say this like when, when I criticize, I'm talking about the Roman Greco system. Well, God's promising in the Old Testament was a system where you had your lineage, your male lineage as a circumcised descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you you inherit the land. God gives you, God channels his blessing through the patriarchal organization of Israel mm-hmm. and then <clears throat> through the prosperity of the land. Okay. So when Jesus Jesus directly talks about these three things, he says, whoever has left houses and fields, father and mother, um, brother and sister, wife and children, I don't think he's talking about abandonment. I think he's talking about how it's no longer a system where you're waiting for God, like you you keep these laws. God's blessing doesn't flow through those means necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Wow, I, I, yeah, I never connected that with the way that, yeah, God's God's favor flowed in the Old Testament. That's really interesting. So you're saying by, you by kind of undermining those ideas, he was also undermining slavery. Well, that's a separate one. Um, I think that the things that Jesus says about wealth, and again, taking up your cross, or the very action of Christ being beaten and dying on the cross tells us that he is identifying with the slaves mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire. Sim- simply because the Roman... Again, I was talking about dominance earlier. Uh, the Roman male status was maintained through the impenetrability of his body. So you did not... like you've, You had to keep your body intact, basically. To be beaten is to be shamed and made into nothing. To be beaten is to become a slave. Um, this is... Again, I think I have the citations. You have citations for that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in... in Wait, where, where do you find these these citations? Like, what are you reading? Roman history. <laughs> like, what like what books? Um, now, this particular one, I think, is... The, 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 now, I did want... This one, I did find... Through, like, looking at the references on, like, the, the references linked on Wikipedia. So, like, slavery in ancient Rome. It starts, the author starts with an S. So, let me just try and pull it up so you guys can look up the book yourselves. So, you're reading primary sources, actually, like, like historians in the time of the Roman Empire? Like, were they contemporary? Um, oh, no. Um, these are works about historical Rome. Okay. by authors today by but authors. they they very thoroughly study the texts so they're citing the primary sources yeah okay yeah there is it starts in an s i really forget what it is it, it talks about like there's a whole Stitzman. list of things <laughs> there's a whole list of like things that were done to slaves that were part of the status of being a slave were slaves crucified a, a, a fair amount? Or was that... Yes! Okay. Yeah. That's another one. Like, only very the lowest of colonized subjects and slaves. Like, 
So Roman citizens couldn't be crucified? Is, or, yeah. Okay. Roman Roman citizens could not be... Uh, huh. Yeah. Let me just pull that one, because that's a pretty good... I mean, it's an uh, older book. It's from 1992, I think. Um, you're saying? I, I still wish Jesus just said... Like, three words, slavery is bad. Like, <laughs> all of what you're saying is true. And what's also true is that he could have just said, oh, and by the way, as an aside, slavery isn't great, y'all. Like, <laughs> But it, to me, it would like, be almost redundant. Really? With everything. So if, if I, okay, let, let's take racism for, as an example. If, if I kind of like undermine like all of what you're talking about undermining oppression in all these different mm-hmm. ways but i never explicitly said it, i was in a racist society and i never explicitly said racism is bad <laughs> would, would you accuse me of like especially if i'm in a society where saying that could get me into a lot of hot water would you accuse me of of, of being a coward I'm not Ooh, saying Jesus is a coward. I'm I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it bothers me that Jesus. But was Jesus say that. talking to people who own slaves? I don't know that part. Um, he talked to the Roman centurion. Um, I'm sure he had slaves. He mostly was talking to Jews. Did but the, did not the Jews have slaves? In the Old Testament, yes, I don't... In the Roman Empire? I don't quite know, but my, my impression, it's under, like... Let's Google it. <laughs> That's a new one to me. I know the Romans did. I really don't know about, like... Um, in slavery in Roman Galilee. I doubt they did. I bet that might be a good point. I, I I see stuff about Jews being slaves. Um, yeah, they would have had to. Be, well, when Paul taught, when Paul told masters to treat their slaves well, was he talking to Gentiles? Probably. Like Jesus did not say, for example, that women are equal in the kingdom. Yeah. Um, Paul's the one who came and he said, didn't say that homosexuality is bad. There's a lot of things he didn't say. He didn't say abortion is bad. <laughs> he didn't. He, he didn't, didn't plug he the didn't, kingdom outpost. He didn't tell us what to All do the most when, we wanna, stuff. when we want to bury bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Jesus, you need to come back and set the record straight on some of this stuff. Oh, here it says. Does um, it not bother you at all that Paul can- and Jesus didn't explicitly condemn slavery? I can't do anything. Okay, so what can't I can't do anything about it. <laughs> what what I try to do because I'm relating to Christians, right? Yeah. What I try to do is I know, like Christians are never like evangelical Christians or just even Anabaptists really are, like mostly evangelical in their outlook yeah. nowadays. They're not going to accept any argument outside of Scripture. Now I'm not yeah. saying this to be. Like, oh, this is how you, you know, convince people. It's the only reason you believe scripture. (laughs) No, yeah. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you have to come at it from a biblicist. Yeah. You have to to understand these topics. For example, gender. 
for entirely from a scriptural perspective. This is which is why I look at the doctrine of two kingdoms. I look at what Jesus said. I go into the Greek words. Like these are internal, um, internal sort of the whole framework is based on the on on. So I put myself in the and I am in the mindset. Or somebody who says that the Bible is true and that yeah. it's God's word, and therefore God's word must be the basis. Except now, I'm saying God's word is not the basis of God's word is the basis of being against the culture wars or nationalism or colonialism or um, power-based gender relations. And I can find all of that in the words and the text of Scripture. Yeah. Right. Um. So. The way that I think and the way that I approach it wouldn't necessarily, and 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 the maybe the communities that I'm part of discussing it wouldn't necessarily come to that line of questioning like, yeah. what about this in the Bible? What about that? What if we, mm-hmm. what if we accept it as the basic fundamental fact that God is sovereign and God is true, and then we work from there, kind of thing? Though all these other lines of argumentation are very valid, and especially if someone has left Christianity, like uh, I know Jolyn has a lot more of these examples at the yeah, top. Yeah, what do you say to her, okay. Jolyn? Are you listening? <laughs> I doubt it. We we. Uh... We're impressed with your latest haircut. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not out to convince people who who are like who are not Christians. That, but do skeptics ever ask you these questions? No. Really. The skeptics that I get are Christian nationalists and Reformed theobros, and <laughs> they're skeptics. As in the skeptics of what I'm saying. Yeah, but you you never engage with skeptics of Christianity on these topics. Is that what you're saying? Mm, that has not been my like. I'm not an apologist in that yeah. sense. So I guess maybe I kind of had to sniff that out. Like I could see how that wouldn't just fall in your lap. Are there atheists in Malaysia? A lot of the people that I. Like social circles are people who are very sick of Christianity, who are deconstructing the same questions. Um, yeah, so they would ask these questions, right? Most of the questions that have come up are to do with corruption in the church. So at Virginia Tech, like your classmates, do do you not anticipate them asking you these sorts of questions? I I ask these questions, like the one about like the manifest destiny in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to come up in the Bible and Empire class. Yeah. Um, I think they'll probably just say that this is bad and the Bible isn't inerrant. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's where that's going to go. <laughs> I'd almost rather... Look, okay, I'll give you an example. I'm not out to prove every facet of my faith is logically and rationally... Um, like, for example, Old Testament prophecy and Jesus. If you talk to any... Or if you read uh, Jewish writings about the subject, the New Testament quotes are not even accurate representations of the Old Testament text in a lot of cases. Yeah. They're often taken out of context. as like an esoteric 
meaning to the Old Testament. Yeah. I don't even need to prove that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfilled X number of prophecies to the X, like, literal. To me, the, the focus for me personally is that Jesus came, Jesus offers this vision. Yeah. And this vision, I think, stands up to criticism. Mm-hmm. It stands up that that specifically what Jesus came to offer, what Jesus called us to do, um, what everything that we talked about, like what the cross symbolized, you know, Jesus becoming a slave, uh, Jesus becoming a nobody in the Roman Empire, like the whole upside down kingdom is a vision on its, from Christ that kind of, uh, how do I say this? It's compelling. It's compelling. Yeah. Uh, I agree, and that's that's going to be more convincing to millennials and Gen Z than some apologist argument for sure. But but how is it different than just some Marxist, leftist, atheist, and and what they're saying? Like how how is it going to offer a more compelling story than the social justice movement in the West? Like what what is it contributing that is that is missing there? Yeah, but just just that earlier thing about like the whole slavery thing. I guess my line of thinking is that if Jesus did not establish it, if Jesus did not teach it, if Jesus did not preach it, um, and it's not part of his kingdom vision, then it's outside of that. It's part of something, you know. It's part of the whatever. Anyway, um, in terms of what, how it's different, I think that's something that I need to study out. I know that. Like, <laughs> I talk to Marxists on a regular basis in my class. It's just really funny because we'll be talking about colonialism, right? And then the students will be like, well, as a Marxist. <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. like, <laughs> they're, just, they're just so... Um, um, Throw it out there. But there is no, like, Marxism doesn't offer concrete solutions or promises in a sense. There's a call for revolution. Um is it in terms of a transformative vision for the world? Does it offer a compelling vision that way? I think it offers a I think that it offers a lot in terms of criticizing the way things are and exposing Sounds kind of like what you do. <laughs> you're like you're sounding like me right now. <laughs> what we need is mirrored emotion. <laughs> can't just criticize. <laughs> I guess the, 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 there are significant differences that I think Christian anarchists, and I need to study it more, Christian anarchists kind of like, they will articulate the differences between, say, liberation theology, and which is based on Marxism. Yeah. Which is, a, I mean, it's, it's just a fact. I'm not trying to be like, oh, liberation theology is based on Marxism. Yeah. It's just, that's just what it is. And it's very like, that's what it is. Um, at Christian anarchism, there are specific differences. For one thing, it's like the voluntary nature of it. That yeah, that you're it's called, not coerced. It's not coerced. It's not forced. It's not. It's not overturning the tables. And I think the the book by Hebden. Um, what book is that? Is that the Indian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Dalit theology and Christian anarchism, or something like that. It's by and he literally goes after liberation theology? Yeah. Wow. 
and and shows why is it different. Dalit theology, but not from some conservative bro angle. And Christian anarchism. No, it's from a Christian, purely Christian anarchist perspective. Yeah, that's really and and is he influenced by Anabaptism? Christian anarchism. The the body of writings includes Anabaptism. Did he mention it in the book? Did you read the book? The whole book. Yes. Did he mention um, Anabaptism? Because if not, that's that's interesting that he'd come to some of the same conclusions from an Indian perspective. Well, he's not Indian himself. Okay. <laughs> he's a he's a, he's British, and I don't know where that like the connection and how he get yeah. got into that. And he's a I'm not really dig, dug into the author. But um, if at the most, I would say in terms of quoting Anabaptist would be like quoting John Howard Yoder, yeah, <laughs> who was like the who was like the the Christian proto Christian anarchist theologian almost, Pervert. yeah. Um, but I don't think I don't remember any specific yeah. quotes from Yoder in that book. Um, the other thing with Marxism is what when the proletariat overcomes the bourgeois bourgeoisie mm-hmm. um they become the bourgeoisie yes, and the exactly. cycle starts again it's cyclical yes where christian anarchism is it is not that way it's different i don't know can you can you speak to that differentiation that's precisely what happened does that have dude does that have anything to do with like the cyclical view of history versus linear view of history or maybe that's unrelated <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. That's a good question. That one Trying I don't know. Trying to find all kinds of patterns here. <laughs> I love that we're like, exploring the things that I haven't th- thought about. Because sometimes yeah. when you zoom into something like, say, gender, then I haven't zoomed into, say, slavery in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, that's just like the whole Christian ethics thing. It's a huge... Like, that's why we have, we have many people who do this. Yeah. You know, so that's why you're getting a PhD in it. Well, the, 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 a PhD is more like you zoom so much into that one particular thing. Yeah. You really, you know everything about that one thing. Do people you know? use dissertations much? I, I was watching this video of Elon Musk talking about how no one ever, <laughs> no one uses most dissertations. They rewrite it. So like this, Darlit Theology and Christian Anarchism was rewritten from a PhD dissertation. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So there's pop versions of it that... Are more accessible, maybe. And like um, Dr. Christianopoulos' uh, Christian Anarchism of Political Commentary on the Gospel. No, what's it called? Uh, yeah, that book too is a reworking of a PhD. So often they are republished as more sort of readable books for the general yeah. audience. But they are also academic books. Uh, what was that question? So The difference between Marxism, which is cyclical... Hebden says that liberation theology is like, let's empower the margins above the centers of power. So let's say the common phrase that they would use liberation theology is preferential treatment of the poor, like the gospel's preference for the poor. Which is true. It is like true in a sense, but when you put that with Marxism, again, it's like what you said, it's making the plural... Never pronounced proletariat, proletariat the bourgeoisie. Like it's it just let's flip the tables. Mm-hmm. Now let's put the bottom on top. Whereas Jesus started it by saying, "Let's go." Let I like he in the form of God and not consider we're all to be equal. God made himself. Yeah, it's the bourgeoisie becoming the proletariat. <laughs> it's it's the Rather bourgeoisie than the proletariat becoming the bourgeoisie. <laughs> 
it's the upside down kingdom. It's I I think you can only really do it through the voluntary upside down kingdom. Uh, in my opinion, we're out here cri- criticizing Marxism, people. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever tell your Marxist uh, uh, co-students this? Well, the thing is that we had basically had a chart this week. Which was the systems that were created by colonization, colonialism, the Enlightenment, which was the rationale for a lot of like even the Western Enlightenment and human like justice. These were only for the people at the top of the really the social. Yeah, they were. I mean, at the same time as they were the Enlightenment, uh, they would argue was the foundation for colonialism. Was part of like it. It, it was hand in hand. And so that is why you could have Thomas Jefferson writing that all men are created equal while at the same time being an enslaver. Yeah. Like the who they considered human, who they considered equal and who who that their so-called liberty and justice and human rights applied to was very narrow in scope. Did you see the mountain he lives on when you were in Char- or he lived on when you were in Charlottesville today? Um, I think we passed a sign. Monticello. Yeah, it would be interesting to visit sometime for sure, just for the. Yeah. Um, but go tomorrow. That was the whole like it almost like it's just like liberalism today is double speak. So you think it's the same thing going on today as what happened in the Enlightenment with Thomas Jefferson, or with the various philosophers. Bacon. Uh, I mean, th- we're only just beginning to read some of the, some of the arguments, some of the research into this. Um, but that's what that's what we. I mean, this is week five of the semester, so that's what yeah. we've been getting into. That the Enlightenment was part was was the rationale for, and what was part of what led to global colonialism, to the slave trade, to really yeah. Huh. I don't know anything about the Enlightenment. So, <laughs> so I mean, the idea that it, it champions... I mean, I guess that... What, what is, that when, is that when scientific racism... Was that part of the Enlightenment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. like, the whole, the whole construction of, like, science and modernity and... And what... Con- like, the material is only... The wood is wood. The trees are the trees. There's no spiritual... Um, existence other than like the physical and tangible New- Newtonian yeah. physics and all that kind of thing it's, it's part of the scientific worldview of the West and that became part of the racial mm-hmm. scientific colonial worldview would be a very simplified way of what was I saying okay so we had this chart right of all these things of item in colonialism and then and then the lecturer asked so what is decolonization and then I said well you burn it all down <laughs> My favorite phrase, right? Yes. And then she's like, exactly. And then she drew like an explosion in the middle. This is what decolonization aims to do. So then, basically, wherever you come from, whatever method that you use, like decoloniality, transmodernity, uh, whatever of these different schools of thought, everyone is basically saying imperial Christendom, the global power of the Western you know, Roman imperial, you know, like Christianity, Christian nationalism, all that needs to go. Mm-hmm. Everybody's focused on getting rid of that. Mm-hmm. And then I asked, so after you get rid of that, <laughs> does it mean that you can have many different worldviews? There's no... So this thing, this colonialism is totalitarian in the sense that no other 
like no other logic, no other uh, f- framework, cosmology, like way of viewing the universe, no other type of physics but Newtonian physics. You know, nothing else. It is the the phrase that one one scholar uses is like um, a master framework clothed in you know, wearing universal clothes that means it, it it's saying that this colonizing western system attempted to be totalizing and to control everything yeah be the only system so when everybody what whatever like i said transmodernity decoloniality all these things are focused on imploding that right or just critiquing that and let's say let's say me and my marxist classmates and all we are all like with bow and arrows aimed towards the same target right so uh the idea is then after sort of the implosion of that which has already happened which is happening but that at the same time it's still perpetuating through like neo-colonialism and global dominance of the world superpower mm-hmm. of Babylon. <laughs> I mean, it still perpetuates. The idea is that... Did you know, aside, aside here, mm-hmm. uh, America has more foreign military outposts than any empire in human history? Wow. I heard that somewhere. Don't quote me on it. But I, I think it's accurate. An empire always has a very human a very well in the modern day it has a very human relatable face such as a beloved world figure that everybody you know that's that is the dual reality of are you talking about queen elizabeth and that is the dual reality that that she was like she Let's herself not throw shade too soon, too no, soon. Well, no i'm actually not that's what i'm saying the the fact that you can praise her as a person Mm-hmm. shows us what the nature of it is today and it's similar to American colonialism in the sense that the world is fed like the the savior the Hollywood America the positive view yeah. uh, our vaccines came to Malaysia like the vaccines that American citizens did not want uh, Pfizer you know, came in the boxes that said like uh, a gift from the people of the United States and these were given to, to Malaysians mm-hmm. I mean uh, nowadays, so like for example, in the person of uh, Queen Elizabeth, whom I have nothing like no shade to throw at as a person, mm-hmm. and as uh, and many positive good things that I personally know about, like her supporting like refugee work in Malaysia, for example, that's like a very real and personal like seeing that in effect. So, anyway, empire is this dual reality. Yeah. Off, off. So you're talking about shoot your you and your Marxist friends are shooting at it. Okay. <laughs> so we're going somewhere with that. Yeah. So what the they are not trying to impose they may strongly believe in their um in their order that they like my friend will literally say, What we need to do is take all the land and all the wealth from the rich and give it to the poor. Mm-hmm. Like we need to redistribute land like that. Mm-hmm. She like literally these are what people around me are saying in class. So yeah. like they're not even making it up or and it's not like even saying it's a bad like it's just what they believe and they're very strong about that. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that no one is out to impose the same totalizing framework as in the same the same um hegemony. 
that no other thing can exist because, in fact, when you really look at it, every single criticism of, of the Western imperial Christian order, whether it's postmodernism, post-structuralism, post-colonialism, Marxism, all these things, they all hate each other. Really? <laughs> I mean, they're constantly critiquing each other as not being... Post-colonials will say, well, you postmodernists, maybe criticizing the exact same thing, but you guys are so Western and so embedded in your European ways. You're just Europeans criticizing Europeans. So, like, post-colonialists do not like postmodernists. And then decolonialists do not like post-colonialists. And they, What's the difference there? You know, it still confuses me, but <laughs> they don't like each other. They'll say that you are really just... Uh, sold out to the West or whatever. So it's like, in a sense, it's not like a conspiracy that is like uniform and out to destroy. Yeah. So it's a bunch of, so you're saying if they do, if and when they do destroy Christendom, they're going to be fighting, they're, they're going to be in power and they're going to be fighting each other and it's not going to be that much better. <laughs> um, no, so what the, what the chart we were discussing at, says and i mean nobody knows what will happen after. yeah um it's sort of like a big bang there. Um, <laughs> but then again this is not like one moment in time and it's like no everybody knows that we cannot go back to the way things were we cannot be in a world that's free of western colonialism mm-hmm. like every like why is haiti why is haiti impoverished like the history of it for example why is it the way that it is why are some countries that all benefited from colonialism, now all the ones championing human rights and giving out aid and, like, why did they hold all the purse strings? Why did they, everything, you know? Uh, why are they keeping, I think it is called neo-colonial, neo-colonialism is a system by which they've, they've passed over, you can have your own country, but really you're 100% dependent on them to buy your products, to sell you their product. So in a sense, mm. they're still draining money out of, like the whole world order is still that way, right? So what I'm saying is it'll never really go away. You I think it'll think. it'll always be that way? Like the West will always be dominant? I mean, I think the West could destroy itself, I guess, you know. It seems to be happening. own hedonism. <laughs> and I mean, just yeah. the way that I... But currently, the way... Now, we were reading articles from the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, by like African leaders or like South American scholars and all that. So their idea was like, oh, you guys left, but you're still draining us kind of thing. Yeah. So there's kind of like a pessimism in that sense. What was I saying? Now, if, if let's say, theoretically, decolonization, the aim is to implode it, then there's a concept of like um, pluri, 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 pluralism, pluriverse. Yeah, it was a, the concept of pluriversality, which means oh, that. <laughs> the fact that pluriversality is a word. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just repeating to you like what we late. talked about in class on Thursday. So <laughs> the idea is simply that everybody just want everybody, you know, everybody is overshadowed by this huge power, imperial Christendom colonization mm. and now everybody is like critiquing that yeah. but nobody is saying that they're they want to take the place of that okay so the christian right in america believes that marxism is out to become the new totalitarian that's why they're terrified framework. yeah 
the essence which I just wrote on Twitter and I was like oh yes this is this is it uh, I was like very pleased with that because it hit on the point for me it was like the essence of Christian nationalism is fearing that others will do unto us what we did unto them exactly <laughs> that, is, that is the most that is so true like it's exactly right <laughs> feminism is characterized as feminists doing to men <laughs> What patriarchy has done? <laughs> it's exactly right, and that's all why the it's it's the chickens coming home to roost, and that's why it creates this kind of reaction, hundred percent. But you're saying that's not necessarily the goal. Um, you don't think that would actually happen? I think it would happen. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's some, a reason to be freaked out. But isn't that just human nature? Like. Okay, yeah, you're right. It is human nature that you just take down one thing and then you replace it with something far yeah. worse. I mean, right? maybe not far worse, but the, the same pattern of of dominating and selfishness and greed. The thing is that domination... It's just original sin, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do believe that. That uh-huh. is why I believe that the... That's why I believe in the two kingdoms and that's why I believe... The, own, the gospel of the kingdom is the only way out of this human system yep. of domination and war. and. So it's like you're saying, yes, you, you're, you're diagnosing the problem the same way, but you're offering a different solution. Is that accurate? Yes, yes. Yeah. Are you going to like chime in with some of those ideas in your class? And, and if so, how do you think it would be received? Well... So far, we are still uh, so like I we we always do get to the question, which is how then do we deal with the problem? What mm-hmm. is the solution? So that's what I plan to research. Yeah, and that is very much I guess welcome in the spheres, because yeah. like everyone is going to have their own way of dealing, like say Marxism or even different forms of like Marxism. Is more than what Marx made. Like Marxism has become used as a tool. Like it became liberation theology for some Native American groups. It became the Red Nation um, for you know. So it has different, different people have taken it as a method and used it in different applications, mm-hmm. or they, maybe they fused it with say uh, the First Nations view of property as being, you know, belonging as sacred land being sacred and not being something that human beings can enclose and like, take for themselves. For example, where was I going with that? But the, it's it's sort of a very nebulous, evolving thing, uh, Marxism. Yeah. They don't, we have, nobody has really got to outlining a solution. Now that's the whole thing about crit. I can read to you the quote by Horkheimer, whom we've read in class. Like, oh, you're reading critical theory. That's so scary. It's going to destroy your faith. God forbid we criticize. Um, so Horkheimer says, critical theory is the is sort of imagining how we liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. But nobody, you can only think about the solution, right? You can only imagine solutions. Yeah. A lot of readings we read, like. Uh, they're just diagnosing the problem. Yeah. It's like we are doing a biopsy of the cancer. You're only doing deconstruction. You're not doing any <laughs> reconstruction. But to do a prescriptive reconstruction is itself uh, dominating. How so? 
because it's saying, well, here in my armchair, I can come up with a solution that will save the world. It, it's kind of a messiah complex, maybe. But, I mean, if our solution is based on what Scripture outlines as the new humanity, then people are going to be, oh, you're Christians, you're part of the problem. <laughs> so it's far, a catch-22. <laughs> so far, I have not had that problem because... You're not what, a white male. <laughs> because whenever we're reading that, like if you're studying decolonization... You're gonna face, or even like you're gonna you're gonna hear people say things about missions, or Christianity, or and and they even many of these people um are from Christian background. Mm-hmm. They know a lot about Christianity, and some quite a few are still Christians themselves. Mm-hmm. And you're going to and you're going to come like academia. People say academia is anti-Christian, anti... You're going to confront a lot of historical facts and reality of what Christianity has been in this world. And it it may not be easy to face that initially. It might be a bit of a shock because, like, as, like, for me growing up, like, I went through this whole, like, disillusionment with Christianity, like, 10 years ago Mm. um, because I learned about the Holocaust and about, like, Christian... Like anti-Semitism, like you know, unhaul like the history of Christian violence, mm-hmm. and and Christian violence in America. You know, if you Google Christian terrorism and read the Wikipedia page, they'll show you like the cross burnings and the Nazis and the you know and how entwined it all is. Like um, when you face that sort of reality of history that you never hear growing up as a Christian. You only hear the good side of it. You hear about yeah. the David Livingstone and the historic, heroic missionaries. Um, the things that you'll be led to, or the things that you're, the questions that you're confronted with may lead you to maybe unsettling, mm-hmm. maybe, um, but we shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't see it as a threat. Yeah. Because I think after all of that, after you've, you know, the first Corinthians three, like all the wood, hay and stubble is burned away. I think what is... After you deconstruct, you can reconstruct. <laughs> well, if you burn away all the shaft, what is like the gold, silver and precious stones re- will remain, which then for me is, is the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any conservative Christians in your class? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? A lot of people grew up... Like, I'm just surprised at how universal the conservative Christian... Like, my, my yeah. classmates were like, Oh, yeah, when I grew up, I was not allowed to read Harry Potter. Yeah. Or um, I went to church. Or it's a big I, deal in America. <laughs> conservative Christianity. In case you haven't noticed. It is like... It's, it's so familiar to people. Yeah. Um, but most have left that most like I would stay out of my class maybe one person has did not like at least go to a church at, as a child yeah so you know is anybody like a right wing Christian in, <laughs> in these circles um, they would be offended by every single like literally to take a decolonization class for example, you'd have to shut down and say, all of this is just Marxist lies invented up. Yeah. Like, you'd have to completely shut out the reality of the history of it. And you can you can lay out the history and then they'll just try to... You know, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen what the... 
and and the defenders of Christianity would say. Um, yeah. So, no, not in my, not in a postgraduate social sciences. <laughs> There's class. no conservatives left there. <laughs> there are Christians. I mean, there are yeah. people who are who study theology, who are passionate. Who have their own faith, or who have grown up in faith settings? Yeah. What's what? What are your thoughts on? And I've been following this a little bit. There seems to be a trend among, and maybe these aren't the current students, but some of the some professors and some academics who come from like basically no Christian background, mm-hmm. like um, Jonathan Haidt, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Sorry to say that name. Um, there, is, there does seem, even Joe Rogan is an example, he's not an academic, but he's an example of someone coming from the secular left who are are not Christian nationalists at all. Like they couldn't, well maybe Jordan Peterson is flirting with it a little bit, but a lot of these people, even like Sam Harris, not, he's an atheist, he's a, one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, right? They are not, they're not coming at it from that angle and yet they're heavily critiquing the like left. wokeism, yeah. It's interesting because I, I recently thought about this. The only political podcast I listen to, which is primarily, I mean, I read books too, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's how I consume a lot of content. The only ones I can stand that are political are are people who come from the Christian right who are criticizing it, which would be the Holy Post, or people who are coming from the secular left who are criticizing the secular left, which is Joe Rogan. That's why I... I, I Enjoy. I enjoy listening to people like Peterson, Jonathan Haidt, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, because they they're with they're they're critiquing their own people. They're like prophets saying there's some weird stuff going on here, and and then the people who are from the Christian right who are doing that in, in their own tribe as well. Those are the people I actually find interesting. Um, have you followed any of that at all? Like, do you see any goofiness? People who criticize their own position. People who are from the left who are getting jaded by some of the the weirdness and the I mean there is some there's some weirdness going on, right? Would you agree with that? Like on on the extremes? I would say the left in America is wealthy, powerful, performative. Um they're mostly using these causes for their own gain and their own wealth. Uh-huh. And so they, I think for, I can't speak for Marx's classmates, but I doubt they're like, oh, we love Joe Biden or, or we yeah. love the Clintons. Like the, 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 they're not the, they're centrist left. They're not the radical left. Yeah. Um, and like I talked, like I said about the enlightenment, like the double standard of, like a lot of say, a lot of say, feminists would criticize feminism as being very white and being centered on the experiences of the wealthy white women, especially first wave feminism, for example. So there's there's a lot of criticism even of like within within progressive circles or what is progressive, what's really radical. What's, um, but the progressives I'm talking about are crit- criticizing the far left, right? So, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. So they're not example. criticizing. You mean like centrist left? No, the it's not. Party. It's not far left criticizing the the centrist left, the Karens. It's, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's 
left it's it's more like classical liberals this is getting into politics which is dumb but it's classical liberals criticizing the intolerant far left right that that that's kind of moralizing that is banning books that sort of thing right um because classical classical liberalism was very tolerant it was like whatever you want to believe believe right and then the far left comes along and says oh we can't have ben shapiro come and give a lecture because that's going to cause people harm, right? Um, If you really believe in something that you really, really do believe in, then you're going to see the the evil in, in what's outside of that. So, like, I can see why in the mindset of somebody who is, who is an act, like a student activist, and they would say, it's not just about, like, the free free exchange of opinions, say what you want. These people are doing violence. But is it... So this is something Jonathan Haidt talked about in The Cobbling of the American Mind, his book there, where, where language, especially about safety, is used when, when referring to words. Like, words are violent. Words are unsafe. Ideas are unsafe. And I, I, I think there's some truth to that. Like, Scripture even talks about the tongue being a deadly fire, right? Setting on a whole force to blaze. Like the tongue has tremendous power. Ideas have consequences. Like you look at Nazi Germany, you look all throughout history. Yes, ideas can perpetuate violence. But when you have, like, like where do you draw that line? Like, because some, some people in the far left, it seems like whenever you disagree with me on anything, your words become violence. Right, your words—you are an unsafe person if you disagree with me on literally anything. Like that—that that does seem like, like it's becoming the case, right? I would say that, like, okay, if someone came up to me personally and said my Christian belief about this particular thing that I'm not trying to impose on you is itself creating, like, a a system of. Uh, now the the violence that I'm think thinking about, I see violence as the uh, one one author, Regina Schwartz calls it violence is not what we do to the other; it's a very construction of the other. So violence is creating a hierarchy where one can dominate over another, and therefore, when let's say you invite a f- a far right uh, speaker, it what you're saying is you're you're supporting, or you're enabling, or you're being part of the marginalization of people who are, you know. So what would you define as far right then? Would you define Ben Shapiro as far right? No, I mean, I've listened to a couple of things. See, some of the videos he puts out can be interesting. What was I saying about that? Uh, what was your question before that? I don't know. Like, like, do you see legitimacy in, in people from the left criti- criticizing the far left for... Oh. Like, it's interesting. I don't, you should, you should li- read or listen to... The Coddling of the American Mind. I would love to, to know what you think of that. But Jonathan Haidt talks about, like, he, he traces it to helicopter parenting where, like, kids are not allowed free play. And it sounds like a whole right-wing thing, right? But it's not. Like, he's he's a liberal. Like, Americans he, will be Americans in some ways. Like, you can, you can change sides, but you still will operate the way that an American has always operated. Okay. How, what, how does that tie into this? I mean, you're talking about a helicopter and all that, like... Being like, 
intolerant or being very pushy about your views or but that's what the left the left is seems more intolerant right now in a lot of ways right they seem more in in my mind and i i'm sounding like a conservative bro right now which is fine <laughs> okay okay the, the one i was going to say earlier was that if you come up to me and that how that whole system of like doing violence by marginalization like let's say christian views on sexuality there you go right if you came if some if a college student came up to me and said you are doing violence yes then the only thing that i can say is i accept your criticism that i accept that and that some that's a very real thing that you are saying am i saying that people of one like even within christian circles that that people who are straight cis het christians dominate over Christians who are um, the term that Abram uses sexual minorities mm-hmm. right the the power differential the bullying the marginalization the making them feel less than that they were not made in God's image that they're somehow more broken than other people all those things do happen and are real and I think we need to acknowledge that yeah and I need to acknowledge that in society that this is what it is complicit with. But wouldn't your classmates be like, okay, great, I'm glad you're not like one of but those. But you're still not. <laughs> but you're still not affirming same-sex marriage as the will of God or as morally upright. And if you're not doing that, you are you are committing an act of violence. Like I, I'm confident a lot of your classmates would say that, right? Wouldn't they? Right. So then... Um, Especially if you're part of a religious organization, also known as a church, which I don't think you are, <laughs> <laughs> that that doesn't that would not allow membership for same-sex couples. Like that's that's the stickler, right? If you are part of a church that's not gay affirming, like you are part of an oppressive system. Or even if you you are part of a church, yeah, full stop, and you're part sure. of Christianity, I think that just being and I, I just being a Christian in 2022, there are questions about, there are hard questions that we have to deal with and we have to affirm the critic, like not that we have to, but I choose to affirm the criticism that people have of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say no true Roman, therefore no true yeah. Christian, therefore it has nothing to do with me. I'm still part of the global institutional existent form of Christianity and therefore like these are questions I do have to deal with yeah and I choose to be violently no not like virulently strong in these questions for a reason yeah um virulently virulent like what does that mean loudly and I'm like I'm not gonna shut up about it. Doesn't sound very <laughs> submissive to me. Not gonna. I'm not gonna shut up about the fact that like, just being a Christian, is a. It's itself, even just a moral question. Can you even be a Christian after all that Christianity has done? I would say that it's not. It shouldn't just be like yes, of course, end of story. Yes, I am a Christian. I mean that means I. That these hard questions are things that I must deal with, and that maybe sounds like deflection. Yeah, no. But are there, but these are hard questions that I do deal with. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good question. 
right? Are you doing violence? Then I would say that I acknowledge that in your worldview that I am complicit in violence. And I, I, I take that criticism. Um, I'd be open to hearing that criticism. I'd be opening to hearing about the personal... Like, like you know, if your ex-Christian um, gay friend wa- wants to tell you their life story and all the ways that they have been... Like, their lives were destroyed by Christians. And I have heard these stories. Yeah. Like, I sit there and listen to these stories. I think we need to to sit and listen to people and their suffering. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, you said you weren't going to do three hours, and we're at two hours right now. <laughs> so. Oh, man. But I also feel like we've just touched on so many topics. And it's oh, just... it's good. I like I like the free-flowing conversation. And, dude, in person is so much better than Zoom. <laughs> so much better. Well, it's more chill. Yeah, it's Even more though, chill. like, the weather is cold here. <laughs> yeah, it just got cold this morning. This was the first cold morning. Is Malaysia not cold? No. It's cold. Never. It's a hot country. Well, we don't have... So we have an oil heater, which costs us about six or 700 bucks a month. And currently doesn't work. It still costs you yeah. money and it doesn't work? Well, it, it stopped working last That's like spring. For, like this time of year, it worked for like three months. Huh? It would work for about three months. And then when it gets really cold, it's like every month. Yeah. Anyway, so Brenna's brother is trying to give us a quote on HVAC. So it's, until then, it will be cold in our house. No, it's fine. I mean, for now, it's fine. I've been drinking enough beverage that I feel pretty warm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take too much because it makes me sleepy. I am getting sleepy. Like, my eyes are starting to close. <laughs> you know what's the worst? What? what is the worst is when you invite someone over who you don't have a lot in common with. And they stay super late, like, and this is happening to me. My eyes, they'll start watering. They'll start literally closing to where I start turning lights off. And, like, my guess is, like, why are you turning all the lights off? But, like, it's because I cannot handle the bright light. I cannot keep my eyes closed. Sometimes I just go to bed. It happens. <laughs> so, well, the fact that I'm still talking to you shows that at least we have something interesting to talk about. Which is, which is about Christianity and violence. Christianity and violence. Yeah. I mean, if someone came up to you and said, look, this is what Christians have done to me, um, there's, it's not, the Christian right would say that you should not apologize and stand firm on who you are and what you stand for. I don't agree. I don't think a Paul, I don't think a, and, and like, even just starting with empathy, mm-hmm. even just starting with acknowledgement of harm or wrong or being, like, part of that, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's being yeah. weak. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, mere devotion. <laughs> and oh, uh, how you're not excited about prayer. <laughs> or any of the spiritual disciplines. Are, okay, is mere devotion part of, like, oppression in some way? <laughs> Well, in fundamentalist circles, from my experience, and I know from Jews' experience as well, I think there were people always, people be like, you can't say it was all bad. I mean, you memorized a lot of the Bible. You, um, but the whole, the whole foundation of it 
the whole the whole framework and it's part of the political theology but part of the whole framework in which the holiness emphasis mm-hmm. certain like the desiring God people and all that um, and 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 fundamentalists like Bill Gothard um, my experience or with like some extreme charismatic people that I've experienced. I, I feel like you could have all these things. You could know the Bible back to front. You can literally memorize all about it and meditate. But why? What makes it still Where's the title? a cult? Oh, I couldn't find it. <laughs> Nothing? No. You looked over by the children's books? Yeah, books. I even got someone to come look at it. Sorry. Alright, you were saying... <laughs> you can edit that part. No, I'm not. I don't edit it on this podcast. Oh, wow, okay. Dear listener, my child is sick and my wife is wondering if I found Tylenol and Blue Line, which I did not. <laughs> what? No, we're still recording. You're on You're on Conversate, baby. Okay, my wife says me to go to bed. All right, well, we can just wrap up. Well, I, I want to, I want to, okay, so, but you do know that correlation doesn't equal causation, right? So, no, yeah, no, no, I'm not saying it's causation. Because there's a lot of people who were passionate about prayer and passionate about caring for the poor and all the spiritual disciplines who were not in bed with the empire at all, like, well, I don't know, maybe Francis of Assisi was a little bit because he was into Catholicism. But, like, all of all of the sort of persecuted groups throughout Christian history were very zealous about prayer and preaching the gospel and all of, all of the points of mere devotion. Like the Waldensians, the Lawlers, the Anabaptists, all of them were, right? Which is not true of all of the oppressive groups. A lot of the oppressive groups, I feel like, were pretty lukewarm in some of these practices. Mm-hmm, yeah. But it does seem like a common theme among the persecuted groups, this radical devotion. So, yes, it is true. You can be, you can be, you can memorize scripture all you want. And this is the criticism I've heard from you. You can memorize scripture all you want. You can pray all you want. You can fast. You can do all of these disciplines and still be oppressive, for sure. But, it doesn't mean it's number one it doesn't mean it's bad and also if you look at the groups that were not oppressive and that were persecuted by the oppressed groups generally they had that common thread of spiritual disciplines and radical devotion that's what i'm that's what that's my case i don't i don't disagree and i don't think they're bad things on their own but i'm no for me it's more of a of a like i see all these people quoting the bible and I see the way they talk about the Bible. They say the duckers. Yeah. Oh, they know the Bible. They can quote the Bible, talk about Jesus, and talk in such Christian terms. And, and on the other hand, you're like, okay, let let this extremely you know dangerous sexual predator get off scot free. Yeah. And have no so you know just hearing hearing the Christian needs come out of these yeah places is very. Um, jarring and yeah. I'm not saying that there's no purpose at all to pray I'm not saying that don't read the bible it's off-putting yeah it's very very off-putting because I know how much like the emphasis is on entire building your entire worldview your entire children's curriculum from the ground up on indoctrinating so-called the bible but really it's the bible according to Christendom which is like a mutilated 
twisted, you know, Bible stuffed into a sword. Yeah. <laughs> Bible wielded as a sword. Yeah. Uh, but do I disagree with mere devotion? I don't think I do. I mean, we've published whatever you want to write about it, we will publish on the Kingdom Outpost. There you go. Kingdomoutpost.org. Yeah. Okay, there's the plug. We will we will encourage that for sure. Yeah. But I know that for a lot of people... Okay, okay. I think here's the thing. For a lot of people, all these things are... A, for at least where I come from, all these things are a given. Mm-hmm. Like, of course you pray and of course you know your Bible well. I mean, I realize that uh, outside of like my experience, that extreme... Uh, extreme, like focus on the bible to the extent of like blocking out all other education and knowledge is not is is not like most people are ignorant of the bible maybe um like say quite a few anabaptists maybe only read the bible through sunday school pamphlets or whatever Mm -hmm. um but these things i guess are already uh, for for a lot of deconstructing Christians, the ones who are deconstructing deconstructing were people who were very passionate about their faith, who who did all the things, and who imbibed all of it. Who were who cared about, like say, purity culture, right? The people who are deconstructing are not the people who were not keeping all the rules, not dressing the right way, talking the right way, following the prescriptive for how you should date or how you should interact. Like these are people who were very passionate. Um, and who for all these things were inbuilt into their upbringing and their Christian experience Mm. and all these teachings about holiness and separation from the world and all that like all that is already uh, already inbuilt into their Christianity did did they really experience God though like I'm okay yeah sure I'm sure a lot of the deconstructing people did experience God and are experiencing God but what what I'm talking about is, ugh, I'm gonna get myself in the hot water. No, go on, go on, go on. Just try and like, like we we can assume that everything on this podcast is just like chit yeah. chat, right? So yeah. we're not gonna be like hold out and like. I I think what I'm trying to prescribe and call people to is more than just prescribe. Prescribe, yes. There's the word. See. I, I hate you said I could say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> what I'm offering humbly <laughs> is is more than just what ev- all, all evangelicals have been taught. Like read your Bible, pray every day. Like that's not it's not exactly what I'm saying. Okay. I I believe that encountering God. Like, if God exists, like, if there's this supernatural being mm-hmm. that exists that I can interact with and in, in the same, like, relational way that I can interact with my fellow human beings, like, that like that opportunity and that it could it exist and it can affect my emotions, it can affect my mind in, in more than just an intellectual way, in yes. an exper- experiential way, like, isn't that, wouldn't that be the most thrilling thing in the world like imagine imagine an alien coming in this door mm-hmm. like we would stop recording this podcast we would freak out it'd be it'd be amazing <laughs> or like a ghost like if a goat like it's only if we saw a ghost <laughs> like there's a reason supernatural thrillers and and paranormal stuff is so big 
in media, right? Because mm-hmm. people like the idea that we can we can access another dimension besides the physical world is really thrilling to people. So so my conviction is that 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 sort of experience, the sort of experience of, of accessing another dimension, spiritual beings outside of the physical world, <laughs> that is available to us. And and it's it's a deep longing in every human being. Otherwise we wouldn't care about all this paranormal all these paranormal movies and whatever, right? That is available. And it, it's not it's not the only thing that's important. Yes, everything else we talked about for these two hours is important. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm not denying that. But that sort of experience is available. Like that, that is, it's not nothing. Like it's, if, if other people throughout Christian history have experienced that, Mm -hmm. I want to figure out how they've done it. Like what, what are the paths of spiritual formation and the spiritual disciplines, the mystics throughout Christian history have experienced? And how can I walk in those same paths? That's what I'm trying to offer. I'm not sure that that's been really offered that well. In evangelicalism. I think that because you are an Baptist, the way that you understand spirituality does is a different emphasis and that is unique because you emphasize on caring for the poor and caring for others. There's a sort of like the Anabapt like so they the they say the Protestant view is like man and God. And then, you know, it's a vertical relationship. And the Anabaptists would say that you cannot have a vertical relationship without the horizontal relationship. Yeah. And that when you have one, you have the other, like, uh, you know, the, the verse that, you know, we are, you confess your sins or something that you restore it to these faithful and just to... Yeah, forgive us. Can there's you something memorize about, more scripture, Rebecca? <laughs> there's, there's something about like horizontal relationships embedded, I think, somewhere in First John. Yeah. Together with the vertical relationship and the way that you frame it. I mean, okay. What if, possibly, now I'm just theorizing here, our understanding of the supernatural is everything that is not material because the Enlightenment told us that in nature, in physical, you know, realities, that there, there's nothing more to it than that. So our supernatural always has to be otherworldly, has to be a dimension beyond this dimension. Yeah. Now, personally, I've started to see that in in sort of like, for example, Native American or Japanese like Zen thinking, that they're actually closer to the biblical way of seeing the world and nature and existence of things than than christians who have been taught rationality and modern science yeah i i agree with all that like everything is sacred god can be experienced and in in the ordinary in the physical world like and and the mystics i think knew that better than anyone else like francis of assisi and, and a lot of these mystics really did experience the natural world as like an as a means of grace that's 100 percent true and I, I think what I said earlier is also true that like that there is a dimension that we can experience in prayer that is supernatural um, that it, that doesn't necessarily isn't mediated to us through anything physical that is very important as well. Um, so I mean, after my experience with charismatics, I was like, okay, after all that, after all the exorcisms and things that they you know. Like talking about like gold dust and exorcisms and healings and all that kind of thing, 
to me like the best way that i can connect with the understand like that personally means something to me when it comes to the spiritual is that love is supernatural because it goes beyond what human beings are capable of so something like to me everything that we talked about is to do with supernatural is to do with the supernatural like loving your enemies is like for someone so you're talking about the alien that comes in the room what if the alien that comes into the room is Cory Tem Boom being able to reach out a hand and shake the hand of a Nazi god who like yeah and forgive and 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 spread that is a supernatural moment or the supernatural moment when someone who is powerful who is like you know when the rich sells when a rich person say you know uh in the figurative sense like in the new testament sense sells all they have and gives to the poor mm-hmm. for sure that is that is an alien moment, and so is speaking in tongues. <laughs> you really you like you you go like well. It's both and it's not either or. Right? It's it's not either or, but what 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 this what this speaking in so like to me like the personal piety aspect of cultivating your personal holiness is is very like oh to me coming from like the what if you call what if instead of that you you frame it as christoformity being formed into the image of christ takes place through the spiritual disciplines that's my yes does it yes speaking in tongues makes you more like christ well maybe speaking in tongues isn't necessarily spiritual discipline so it would be things like prayer solitude Meditation on scripture, silence, fasting, generosity, like things like that. It's not the only way we're formed into the image of Christ, but it is, it's been proven to do so throughout like, de- like centuries of Christian history. And that if you add on the caveat that you don't do that at the expense of serving other people, that's it. For sure. Let's, well, serving, I would say, is a spiritual discipline. Yeah. Anything that requires you to deny yourself and, and, and it draws you closer to God and in a sense is a spiritual discipline, right? But to me, denying yourself is like to deny myself. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, today I'm not taking, I'm not going to eat this cheese and it's going to stay in the fridge unless I take the cheese and give it to somebody. To me, that's, then it's worth something rather than an act of personal individual piety. I know you've hit upon my both, yeah. You you hit on my you hit on my sort of like you actually blew my mind a little bit. The idea that spiritual disciplines are part of the process of becoming like okay, well, so that's that's like the most that, that's a basic truism of spiritual. Is it yes? That, that's like oh wow, really? <laughs> yeah, like, you blew this my is, mind there. Like John Mark Comer, all all of these Foster, all these guys and and girls are teaching this. We're having um. We're having someone on that Jesus podcast, Dr. Barbara Peacock, who's an African-American scholar who talks a lot about spiritual formation. You should look up her stuff. I'm listening to her book right now. Um, yeah, totally. Like, we're, we're going to be exploring that a lot more on that Jesus podcast, hopefully in the next couple You're months. Just, and wow. I know you won't listen. <laughs> to me, just like, I don't know. There's something... It's almost like um, it's almost like I see the vertical relationship in the horizontal relationship. That's also true. 
Yeah. I do, but then there's like a... I guess you hit on a sort of mental block for me. Um, the part that... The part that... I mean, it's also, be like, oh. it's also just brain science. Like, a lot of this is, is, is somewhat physical as well, that if you're, if you're alone and you're introspective and contemplative, you will be more joyful and peaceful, right? So you see this in e- a lot of Eastern religions too, where these things are psychologically beneficial and certainly spiritual, spiritually beneficial, um, and, and if we're trying to become like Christ, who is peaceful and loving, then, yeah, we, we do need to discipline ourselves in some of these areas, for sure. Like, it's... If that's someone's culture and, 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 and that is for you, I think it's right that you should challenge the way that other Christians like me think about something like that. Because what... I think the, the it comes back to maybe what makes us passionate or what gives us what is life giving for us yeah for me like for example the idea of becoming like christ like so ephesians the exciting part about ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 is the part like we are created for good works and we are god's workmanship maybe you're maybe the part that you both parts would excite you but for people with the emphasis on personal the idea of being sanctified or being made holy and being made like christ uh is the exciting part, but for me, like I don't want to be made perfect and put on a shelf. Yeah, you want to do something. I or like the verse in in, in Second Timothy, or like vessels. Uh, we are now in the great house. They're not only vessels of gold and silver, but wood and clay. And then, like, if any man cleanses himself, uh, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful to the master. Right. Yeah. So, like, to me, it's not just being polished and, and achieving this level of spirituality like if it's just that I don't, I don't want yeah. that <laughs> like the part that like oh now you're useful now you can do something yeah, that part is sure. the exciting part you know what I mean yeah no I agree 100% and you will always have that emphasis as an Anabaptist but a lot of the when I when with the thought of spiritual disciplines the thought of piety ascetism kind of makes me think of like the the culture that is in the dominant Christianity, which is the the personal piety, which is at the expense of of justice and yeah yeah. But if it's if it's both, yeah, it's I, both. One hundred percent. I don't see why no, but is the is the part that's really really exciting, sort of the the spiritual like maybe the orthodox idea of the spiritual joys of a mystical union with God. I do like like theosis is is a fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I like I like to think about theosis in terms of gender because we're not made to be um, hyper male or hyper female. We're made to we're you know we're intended to be in the image of Christ, and there isn't a separate like Christ is not split into the ultimate Christian male and the ultimate Christian female. Yeah. But, well, here we are back to the page here. <laughs> well, why don't we why don't we wrap it up there? Mm-hmm. And uh, close in prayer. Just kidding. Um, dear listener, you can. I encourage you to pray and read your Bible. <laughs> and uh, don't endorse the patriarchy. Um, there we go. My closing thoughts. Well, that was interesting. Two hours and 22 minutes we did it. <laughs> <laughs>